Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 13, the late edition of G News for July 2018, in which we'll be sorting through the pile of news stories coming out of San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, there's all kinds of great stuff, including a couple trailer breakdowns. Those seem to be a favorite (laughs) for those who don't get to go to San Diego Comic-Con, but... One of the things that also comes out of Comic-Con is our bonus item in which we speak with Katie Burt, who's an associate editor here at Den of Geek. And she actually moderated the Winona Earp panel for sci-fi at San Diego Comic-Con. And I spoke to her before the convention to talk to her about, you know, the experience of moderating her first panel as well as the fandom associated with that show. So we'll share that with you a little bit later. But we've got some really fun news items to talk about this time. So let's go ahead and get into the news for the last half of July. All right, Mike. Well, we already brought up San Diego Comic-Con. And clearly that marks a turning point for genre television and movies. And whether the excitement emanates from long-awaited trailers that you already mentioned or tasty news from the showrunner there's something for fans no matter which way they look and certainly one of the more anticipated panels in 2018 was the doctor who team and the introduction of the first female doctor jody whittaker right in the last podcast we talked to uh, leonard sultana about san diego comic-con and we didn't bring this particular one up and this was definitely a hallmark of the convention yeah and he's a brit after all (laughs) yeah (laughs) not sure how we slipped that one But the question is, will Whitaker's 13th Doctor approach stories with the same spirit the previous 12 have? Now, of of course, she knows she has some rather large shoes to fill and commented on her first days on the set. And and she said, my first two days shooting, I was in somebody else's costume, Whitaker recalls. I was on their set. I was in their TARDIS and I was nervous to touch anything. I felt as if I was very much in someone else's shoes, which is a wonderful way to start this journey. Yeah, because it fits the character, right? (laughs) Yeah. Now, that said, fans have embraced not only a change with the Doctor, but also with new showrunner Chris Chibnall, who couldn't be happier to work once again with Whitaker. He was uh, Torchwood associated, was he not? Uh, Broadchurch. Broadchurch, okay. The most extraordinary thing that happened that day, which Jody's too modest to say, Chibnall says, we were on set and Jody did the take and a lot of the crew gravitated towards the monitor and the ones who worked on the floor, they all sort of came up to us and we were just sitting there silently crying at the emotion of the scene and (laughs) all of the crew who've been working on it for years just went, oh, she's the doctor. (laughs) And it was a really magical thing. I mean, you get goosebumps even thinking about what it must have been like on that set. All right. And it's interesting. I mentioned Chibnall. I knew there was an association that went back before Doctor Who. And of course, Whitaker and Tennant were 
together on Broadchurch. So that's got to be a little bit surreal for them. <laughs> yeah. And of course, she was asked about that experience and whether or not she was going to take anything away. I mean, how cool was that to work with the new Doctor Who showrunner? And then, of course, David Tennant, who was uh, <laughs> 11, 10. I always get it mixed up. <laughs> no, I think he was 10. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, she said, the wonderful thing about playing the doctor is I'm playing an alien. So all those rules are kind of irrelevant to the approach. But yeah. What you do notice sometimes within episodes, other people's responses are different because they're speaking to a woman. And that's interesting. And that's why this role will continue to be layered and fascinating to play. And as you might imagine, once she received the news that she was going to play the next doctor. But, oh, yeah, you can't tell anybody. I, I, can you imagine <laughs> what that must be like? So let's listen to Jodie Whittaker talk about having to keep that news inside her. It was particularly hard keeping it from your kind of close friends and family because the obvious question of, oh, do you, do you want to do that next month? Knowing I was moving to Wales. I was like, eh, I don't know. I might be a bit busy. I just had to kind of make out that I had a lot of social events for a long time. <laughs> but no, it was amazing. And also, it's good practice because you can't say anything about the show ever. Lucky for you guys. <laughs> what a great panel. Yeah, that sounds like it would have been a really fun panel to attend. Lots of great stories to tell behind the scenes. Yeah, and it's not going to be long now as BBC's Doctor Who is scheduled to return in the fall of 2018. But for now, you can read David Crow's Den of Geek article, How Doctor Who Season 11 Will Maintain the Same Spirit. Okay, and one of the things we actually did mention with Leonard Saltana in our last podcast was Aquaman. And Aquaman, of course, was a big draw for the comic book fans in the audience, which are plentiful at conventions like this, especially this particular one. And because Marvel did not have a presence, DC really was able to take center stage. And so Jim Dandy decided to take the Aquaman trailer and break it down for his article, Aquaman trailer breakdown and analysis. Now, comic book movie trailers are ripe for the picking, especially for new superhero movies, because fans of the original source material, they kind of comb through the images of these trailers to find references to known aspects of the hero's origin or to villains or other peripheral characters from the comics that they're expecting to see or that they're excited to see. Yeah. And, and some of these trailers are two and a half bordering on three minutes long. So they're able to pack a lot of information and, and a lot of teases in there. Right. And if you go frame by frame and, and catch the screenshots as they go by, you can get a lot of uh, information out of them. And the first thing that Jim Dandy noticed was that there was this color palette for Aquaman, it's much brighter than most DC offerings, which tend to be dark, and the tone is much more adventurous, perhaps in keeping in the with the shift that was brought about by Wonder Woman, which was a more successful outing for DC. And so the trailer begins by cementing Arthur Curry as Aquaman, the half-human, half-Atlantean son of New England lighthouse keeper Tom Curry and Atlantean queen Atlanta played by Nicole Kidman. And the trailer also includes a young Arthur communicating with fish in the city aquarium with telepathic powers that comic readers are definitely familiar with. But what's new for the film version, I noticed, are these glowing yellow eyes, which are going to show up anytime Arthur is using his powers, which I thought was kind of a cool touch. Yeah. And the other cool touch is I just love how all of these big name actors continue to gravitate towards genre films. Yeah, who would have expected Nicole Kidman <laughs> to show up in her brief role, of course. But Amber Heard is no slouch, and she's playing Mira, 
who looks pretty much straight out of the comics, right down to the, using the digital coloring on her hair because it is kind of unnatural. Mira was created in the 60s as Arthur's eventual wife. So here we can see kind of that love interest thing going on. But it's more of an encouraging role where she encourages Arthur to return home to claim the throne. He hasn't been home for a while. He's been topside for a while. And she's got some cool powers herself. She's a hydrokinetic, basically a waterbender. But as Jim says in his article, one of the most badass in existence. And then, of course, if you're looking closely, you might have spotted Patrick Wilson as Orm Marius, Aquaman's half-brother and pretender to the throne of Atlantis. He's got super strength, if we're following the comics on that one. And we also see Yahya Abdul-Mateen II as Black Manta, who is mainly just a regular person in an insane battle suit with a grudge against Aquaman. But however briefly we see him, he is definitely one of the cooler villains that they could have picked from the Aquaman pantheon. And then finally, there was a very brief glimpse, and I thought Jim was great to pull this detail out. You see not only the big sea creature battle sequences, which were cool enough, but if you're looking closely, you see a swarm of beings that are following a red light. And that, according to Jim, is the Trench, a race of Atlanteans who, when Atlantis was sunk, fell into a deep trench in the ocean and adapted their bodies and their society to fit in. And these guys are monstrous, very unpleasant, according to Jim. And if you want to learn more about some of the hidden Easter eggs in the trailer for Aquaman before you go to see it in the theaters, check out his trailer breakdown and analysis. All right, well, let's continue our talk of monsters here, Mike, because for fans of the 1950s and 60s science fiction cinema, it's virtually impossible to ignore the seemingly omnipresent monster intent on terrorizing the people of Japan. And of course, I'm referring to Godzilla. Oh, another trailer. Great. (laughs) And while it's somewhat painful to watch those early low-budget flicks, the return to the big screen of the iconic lizard in 2014 gave contemporary audiences a chance to see what all the buzz was about. But here we are four years later, the trailer for Godzilla 2, King of the Monsters, debuted last Saturday at San Diego Comic-Con, and it seems to indicate that these giant lizards may in fact be the, quote, original and rightful rulers of Earth, which Dr. Emma Russell, played by Vera Farmiga, called Titans. Now, one scene in the trailer shows Ken Watanabe's Dr. Serizawa in underwater gear exploring some sort of ancient ruin. What would the trailer be, however, without at least one shot of Godzilla himself here being watched by Emma's husband, Mark, played by Kyle Chandler, and a crew in what appears to be some sort of deep water research station, which appears very ominous. And and like you said in your trailer, there's just so much to pick apart. And and I don't mean that in a negative way, just to really get to uh, what might end up being in the feature film once it hits cinemas. The one time I ever did that for Den of Geek was for Stranger Things. I did a trailer breakdown and analysis. It's a lot of fun to pull out those details and just speculate on what it might mean for the full movie without being too spoilery. It's kind of a teaser more than a spoiler. Yeah. Now, perhaps the single most breathtaking shot comes as Mothra spreads its beautiful, almost luminescent wings and begins to take flight. One of my favorite Godzilla opponents. 
and how can we not harken back to the original Mothra, which was first hatched in 1961? And we've also got Rodan flying over a devastated Washington, D.C., and Madison telling Emma, you're a monster, before a real monster glares <laughs> through a window behind her. <laughs> now, even though Godzilla, King of the Monsters, release date is some 10 months away, check out Don Kay's scene-by-scene breakdown of the trailer titled Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Trailer Breakdown and Analysis. All right. That sounds like a fun one. I haven't seen that trailer yet, so you've enticed me. (laughs) Well, let's switch from movies to TV for a second because Star Trek Discovery, which is a show I haven't quite caught up on yet, but I definitely plan on doing so, is, you know, on CBS All Access. And these properties are constantly trying to expand upon what they've built for these new streaming services. And we talked about Stargate origins on our sci-fi fidelity podcast as an easy way for a streaming service in that case, Stargate command to expand upon its existing content, the way webisodes do for traditionally aired shows. So now CBS all access is preparing to do the same thing. I'm not sure how I feel about this because webisodes are so easy to do and don't really seem like bonus content that's worth ponying up the cash for, but the stories that they've decided to go with in Star Trek sound kind of enticing. CBS will supplement viewers enjoyment of Star Trek discovery with a four part miniseries of short format episodes called Star Trek short Treks this fall An executive producer and creator Alex Kurtzman announced the launch at a panel for the CBS all access series at San Diego comic-con carrying through with the network's commitment to produce Star Trek content to sweeten the deal as I said, for subscribers to the streaming service and the four shorts will come out monthly and will share a brief 10 to 15 minute story that delves into established characters and themes from Star Trek discovery. Now, Dave, I don't know if you like, I really like Doug Jones's character, Saru, just as an example. And that's one of the ones they're going to do. Absolutely. And, and I loved him in falling skies as well. (laughs) Yeah. Doug Jones is, is always a joy with his lanky frame, very alien himself. But that's going to be one of them. We're also going to revisit Rain Wilson's character. He's going to reprise his role as Harry Mudd in an episode that he's going to direct as well. And then we've got some new content. Aldous Hodge will appear in an episode where he's a man named Kraft who finds that he's the only person aboard an empty starship. That sounds very Twilight Zone-esque. And another favorite character for fans is Tilly, played by Mary Wiseman. And there's going to be one for her in which she shares a friendship with an unlikely partner. And I mentioned the one that Doug Jones is doing. He's going to get a backstory episode for Saru and it will explain how he became the first of his race to join Starfleet. So once I read those descriptions, I was like, okay, (laughs) I'm a little bit more interested now. You've got me, but I just, I'm just kind of curious as to how four webisodes essentially are supposed to you know, really entice people to subscribe to the service to see the entirety of Star Trek Discovery. I think it's a, it's an interesting strategy, but this actually is my article. So if you'd like to read more, check out my article entitled Star Trek Short Treks Expands Discovery Universe. Right, cool. And, you know, CBS is, I'm sure, not making their financial records known and to let us know how this streaming service is actually performing for them financially i'm sure they're going to be patient but yeah it's just something about paying for webisodes you know right exactly the verdict is still out on this and i kind of tackled this article specifically 
thinking, how is this going to shake out? Is this going to be enough? Because with Stargate having done it and now Star Trek, I'm curious to see what happens in the long run. All right. Well, serious television fans can't help but think back to the 2007 and 8 writer's strike with thoughts about how it ruined several series that ended up canceled before their time. But there were some rays of sunshine that came out of that dark era. For fans of Joss Whedon and the Whedonverse, the Dr. Horrible miniseries starring Neil Patrick Harris immediately comes to my mind. Oh, yeah. That was a unique time for web series, speaking of web content, where that kind of caught on through word of mouth and you and I enjoyed it at the same time. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Right. Now, rumors have appeared over the years that Whedon planned to develop the characters from that web series, but really nothing ever came to fruition but an announcement at this year's Comic-Con gives fans a chance to revisit this wacky world. And Hall H was once again the source of big news as Whedon announced the web series would be returning as a comic book for Dark Horse and will be called Dr. Horrible Best Friends Forever and is going to be released on November 14th. I'm on board with that. <laughs> he says each member of the Hammerverse, sorry, Doc, that's what it's called. He registered it. <laughs> it's a delightful, bigger-than-life character, but more importantly, on a very human level, they're idiots. Yeah. You'll thrill to their adventures, weep for their pain, maybe not weep, maybe just, I don't know, itchy nose, based <laughs> on actual events. Uh, according to the Dark Horse press release, Dr. Horrible Best Friends Forever will feature the team-up of Dr. Horrible and Captain Hammer as they try to take down Time Temptress Hourglass. However... If you need a refresher, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog followed Neil Patrick Harris as the titular villain, Dr. Horrible, who fought with his nemesis, Captain Hammer, played by Nathan Fillion in the miniseries, and he falls for the girl at his local laundromat, Penny, played by Felicia Day. So for more on the Dr. Horrible comic, including a sneak peek at the cover, check out Alex Bojalad's Den of Geek piece, Dr. Horrible comic book revealed at SDCC 2018. All right. I'm looking forward to that expansion. And interestingly, I also picked a Whedon verse article to highlight from the Den of Geek website. How could you and, not with this? <laughs> I know there's so much great news coming out. And this one was controversial, exciting. Wasn't sure how to feel about it. It's an article also by Alec Bojalad entitled Buffy the Vampire Slayer Reboot in Development. Now, I am not one to panic when I hear about reboots of beloved properties, but I had this viscerally negative reaction to this news that Buffy the Vampire Slayer was under consideration for rebooting because I figured it would just be a rumor that would dissipate because this rumor has been floating around for a while and I figured it would go away like those calling. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. For a reboot of Firefly, another beloved Joss Whedon project, which, you know, it just is never going to happen. But now a Buffy reboot as well and truly in development and I'm still not quite sure how I feel about it, but there's some recent news after Alec Bojelad's article came out that makes me feel a little bit better. But just so you know, 20th Century Fox, which owns the rights to the original show and creator Whedon are on the same page, having commissioned a reboot of the series, which will feature a black actress. She won't be in the titular role as Buffy, but rather as a slayer. So uh, I think there's probably going to be some updates on the site regarding this one. And before we get too much further, I do want to share with you this clip of the cast talking a little bit about what would a reboot look like that has been resurfacing on social media since this announcement, because the interview was from a year ago when it was just more speculative, but it actually is interesting to hear the opinions from the cast. So take a listen. Yeah, I wonder if we should do the Buffy cartoon. I would see that. That sounds interesting to me. I've always felt like that's so much more a Joss question than an yeah. any yeah. of us question. He's really the the most appropriate architect to decide whether it is or is not. If Joss is helming it, hell yeah. If he's not, hell no. I think it would just be crazy if something like that happened. It would just make so many people happy. Buffy would have a walker and it would just be a steak at the bar. I mean, it's, you know... <laughs> As David has said, you know, these characters are immortal, a lot of them, and we're not. (laughs) Yeah, that seems pretty difficult. And I think it's nice to think about these things. I think it's for the fans, it would be fantastic. So it sounds like they weren't too far off, the main ingredient being, of course, Joss Whedon for the reboot to happen. But Monica Owusu-Breen, who worked with Whedon and his brother Jed on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., is slated to write the pilot and maybe more. Owusu Breen did step away after season one of Midnight Texas as that show's showrunner. So she does seem primed to fill the showrunner role on this one as well, if it comes to fruition. So that would be cool, not only for a black starring character, but also a black showrunner and a female at that. I think that's kind of a magical formula for this diversity angle that they're going after. Right. And as you said, I mean, the Slayer doesn't slay forever. You know, Buffy replaced whoever the slayer was before her faith showed up. I'm not sure. Oh, well, that's right. She showed up when Buffy, Buffy died there momentarily. Temporarily. (laughs) Right. But it it makes perfect sense that we're not really rebooting Buffy. We're rebooting the slayer verse or whatever Whedon wants to call it. Exactly. So Fox television groups, chairman and CEO Gary Newman had mentioned in March that Buffy was the most ripe show in their lineup for a remake. But he's quoted as saying, when Joss decides it's time, we'll do it until Joss does. We won't. (laughs) So Whedon will be executive producing the new series, probably more in a JJ Abrams type of shepherding it to the network kind of role. 
along with Gail Berman, Joe Early, Fran Kazooie, and Kaz Kazooie, who produced the original Buffy film that inspired the TV series. And Alec puts it best in his closing paragraph of his article, where he says, perhaps it's uncomfortable to some that such an iconic series could get the dreaded reboot treatment, that at least the intention to update the show with a more inclusive, diverse cast is in keeping with the show's original progressive spirit. And those who did actually catch Monica Owusu-Breen's tweet, where she says, here we are 20 years later and the world seems a lot scarier, so maybe it could be time to meet a new Slayer, and that's all I can say. But just that small phrase in her tweet was enough to tell people and reassure them that we're not talking about rebooting the character. We're talking about rebooting the franchise, as it were. And that makes me feel a little bit better about it. But I'll reserve judgment because this is a classic that is very dangerous to tamper with. (laughs) So we'll see. Yep. But we have another great female show run show that we're going to share in our bonus content here. We spoke with Katie Burt, who's an associate editor here at Den of Geek, who, like I said, did moderate the San Diego Comic-Con panel for Winona Earp. And what a fun time that must have been, because I believe the panel started with the announcement that Winona Earp, before season three had even started, or I guess it started the night before (laughs) the con, has already been renewed for season four. So this actually is a chat that I had with Katie before she knew that information but can you imagine moderating a panel with that crazy crowd as they got that news? Oh, was was Kevin up there with them? <laughs> I'm sure he was in the audience somewhere. No, he wasn't up there, but he was definitely in attendance. But let's go ahead and take a listen to this great conversation. I will warn you that there are some spoilers for Winona Earp in this interview. If you're not caught up in the series, but if you're a fan of the show, this will be a good one for you to listen to. All right, I'm here with Katie Burt, and she has not only the honor of writing about Winona Earp, but also is a fan herself. Is that a fair (laughs) assessment, Katie? That is correct. It's always so much nicer when you're a a bigger fan of the shows you're covering. It makes it it a lot easier. Oh, that's for sure. And I, I have that overlap as well myself. And in fact, because you are going to San Diego Comic Con and moderating a panel for Winona Earp, I mean, that actually comes about because of some of your writing, I would imagine, in the fandom arena. Is that right? Um, Yeah, I believe so. I was so the publicist reached out to me about moderating the panel, but I'd been lucky enough, as you heard, to to be able to interview the creator, Emily Andrus of Winona Earp, as well as several of the cast members at the ATX Television Festival last month. So yeah, I've been covering the show for a while. It's it's a small show with a relatively small audience and coverage from, you know, we're one of the larger outlets that covers it. So I think they they really appreciate the support. And it's a show that's a great fit for Den of Geek. And it's a great fit for me as someone who really likes supernatural stuff and also shows that center female characters and female relationships, which Winona Earp really does. We actually got to interview Tim Rosen and Melanie Scrafano for our Sci-Fi Fidelity podcast as well. And they just seem like they are fans themselves. Is that accurate to say? Yeah. So as far as I can tell, they're all delightful human beings, this entire cast and the creative team, at least the ones I've had a chance to interact with. And when I was writing my recent article about how wonderful the Winona Earp fandom is, 
to be a part of, a lot of the responses I got from fans themselves saying, you know, where, where do you think this comes from? Where, why do you think this is such a nice place to be? They said that it was because of this cast and the showrunner who treats them with respect and listens to them, but also, you know, they treat each other with respect. They seem to genuinely enjoy making the show. And that is apparent on the screen and in, in their interactions with fans. Now you, because you were at the ATX television festival before season three aired, and now you're going to be moderating a panel after the season three premiere has aired. Does that take some of the heat off of you as a moderator? I mean, <laughs> you'll be able to <laughs> talk about it without getting too spoilery. I didn't think of it like that, but I think it does. I am really glad that the fans will have already seen the premiere episode, which actually they did an early premiere of it on sci-fi. So the people who are at Comic-Con, I'm assuming will definitely have seen the first episode. So rather than me, you know, having access to that as press often do and walking that balance between getting people excited and using my knowledge of what's to come to, to kind of like lead the conversation, but also not revealing too much. I'm glad that we're, you know, on the same page to a certain extent. So yeah, that should be fun. And it's just, it's, it's a fun room to be in. I've had a chance to be at one on earth panels in the past and the energy in the room is just, it's, it's really wonderful, which is true of a lot of Comic-Con and convention experiences. Oh yeah. Especially if you're in one of those smaller rooms, that helps a lot too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And in a, the smaller fandoms, everyone who is a fan of the show just seems to be all in. There aren't a lot of casual fans, I don't think. So that creates a really interesting dynamic, too, within the fandom and within panels like this one. Now, let's get into the season three premiere a little bit here. So spoiler alert if you haven't seen it <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but I just want to mention some things that might actually come up during the panel, because I think fans are really going to be curious about some backstories that are starting to be explored. I mean, when you get to season three of a show, you can indulge in some of that a little bit more, especially with Nicole Hott, who hasn't really had a lot of development in that arena. And now we find out in the premiere that she might've actually belonged to the cult of Balshar at some point. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause that was one of the things that most intrigued me about the season premiere as well. And I think at first when I saw that reveal happen, I didn't know how I felt because I was like, oh, does everyone have to have this like very intense, tragic backstory that's related to yeah. <laughs> to this world? But I was reading a postmortem interview that Emily Andrus did with TV junkies, and she was talking about that element of Nicole not really fully understanding maybe what her own backstory is, which I think makes me more intrigued to to find out about this or to go on this like character arc because it's not just another example of Nicole hiding something huge from Waverly and from these other characters, which I feel like we did that last season. I don't need to see that story again. So this seems like it's going to be something different. And you almost have to. Anybody that lived in purgatory for any length of time is going to have some kind of skeleton <laughs> in their closet. And why would you even stick around to a certain extent <laughs> yeah. if you weren't somehow like connected to this world? But you, you bring up a good point because the thing with Waverly and Nicole, which has the ship name of Wayhot, a very, very big part of fans' enjoyment of the show, when you have a relationship like this that speaks to a fandom that has been burned in the past, and I'm looking at the hundred at this point for killing off major characters that are in a lesbian relationship, is this 
difficult, do you think, for them to keep the stakes high for this relationship? Because in a sense, you almost feel like they're safe. There's no way Emily Andrus is going to kill off either one of these two. So how do you keep the stakes high for these two characters? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I don't know how important it is actually to keep the stakes high. Like what you're saying where these characters are safe and Emily Andrus has like assured fans that that is the case and establish that trust with them. I think that's more important in an instance like this. And I guess there's ways to tell stories that are still emotionally gripping, even if it isn't like we're so used to this, will they, won't they with relationships or this like tension of what's going to be the thing, the huge obstacle that makes things more difficult for them or threatens them. But I think there are other ways of telling stories. They're just less tropey and therefore harder to write in a lot of ways. So I'm curious to see how, how they portray this relationship in season three, maybe without doing that and what alternate modes of TV romance can look like. Well, especially, I mean, I'm not a writer in that, in the television sense. So it really becomes a question of what stakes do you come up with besides life and death stakes, but there are certainly other levels that they could explore. So that's where the the talent of the writers comes into play. Although speaking of life or death, Waverly was in a very precarious position come the end of the season three premiere. That's true. That's true. (laughs) But I'm also thinking of, of people like Doc, who gets a little bit of underworld backstory where we weren't sure that that was part of his development. And now it turns out it is. He's not just being haunted by Alice. It's also more to it than that. I'm so worried about Doc. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone on this show has a lot to deal with, but I did get a chance to interview Tim Rosen at ATX and he was talking a bit about how they tend to underplay the degree of trauma that Doc has endured. And I, I think maybe that might change this year to a certain extent, but it's true. Doc should rightly be a complete mess of a human being, but he still manages to function on some level. <laughs> and I'm very impressed with that. Yeah. And of course, when you're setting up something from the end of season two to season three, you know, you almost have to start with everyone in the dumps <laughs> in order to sort of enjoy their their rise. And there was some fun in the in the season premiere, of course, as well, with some badassery taking out vampires. But I want to talk a little bit about that because the mythology of the show kind of has a very Buffy the Vampire Slayer formula to it, especially now that vampires, I mean, I know that's not necessarily an ongoing storyline, but do you think it really has the magic formula that other shows have tried and failed to imitate with regard to Buffy? You've got the demons, you've got the herb curse, but you've also got that really snarky humor to it. And appeals to that kind of audience. And in that sense, I wonder why it doesn't have a wider appeal. Yeah, well, for me, the mythology is the least interesting part of the show, which I think says more about what kind of TV viewer and fan I am than it does necessarily about the show. But I think one of the strengths of the mythology is just how connected to so many of the different characters it is. And I think this villain actually intrigues me the most in that respect, because he's you know, in a lot of ways, it would have made sense, I think, if he were the season one villain. Well, in that sense, I guess he's kind of like the master in Buffy the Vampire Slayer season one. (laughs) Yeah, he is a lot like the master. There's so many comparisons to Buffy. There's a lot of comparisons to Supernatural. The show isn't doing necessarily anything new when it comes to even like a genre intentions, but it's doing it really well. And it also is 
doing, you know, this like interpersonal drama and these female characters and relationships so well in a way that most of their shows on television, even now, are not as good at. I think you're right. I think there probably are a lot of people out there that might not even be genre fans that are enjoying it just for the characters and the relationships in the show. Yeah. And it is so funny. And the humor. Yeah, for sure. And another character besides the new villain for the season, which is carryover from season two, we also have Mama Earp in play. How excited are you to see this character and this actor join the cast? Oh, so excited. I grew up watching Anne of Green Gables. We really only got public television when I was a kid. So I watched that miniseries starring Megan Follows over and over and over again. And I was also a big Rain fan. So to see not only to have this character come in, I mean, I think anyone playing this character, I'd be very interested in finding out how Mama Earp relates to everything, who she is to like, she has these amazing daughters. Yeah, what kind of person she is. But to have that character come in and be played by an actress of this caliber, I can't wait to see what all of her interactions with the other characters look like, because so far we've seen so little of her and only really interacting with Winona. Well, that's going to be fun to see how that develops. And and are all the major players going to be at San Diego Comic-Con? Uh, I assume Kat and Dominique and Melanina, everybody's there. Yeah, they're bringing the whole cast, including the Contessa. Oh, right. right. Uh, Chantel Riley is the actress's name. And I have no idea what's going on with her character, but I'm really excited to see um, what she brings to the show moving forward because she's still very mysterious. All right. Well, Katie, we're really looking forward to seeing your coverage and hearing about your experience at San Diego Comic-Con. And, and thanks for talking to us today about Winona Earp. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. All right. And I'm very appreciative to Katie Burt for talking to me about Winona Earp. She's clearly an enthusiastic fan of the show, including writing about it and the great fandom that that show is able to cultivate is what really makes that particular show special. So kind of in the same vein of, as Buffy, now that I think about it. <laughs> but lots of good stories coming out of San Diego Comic-Con, and we hope that you enjoyed reading about them on the Den of Geek website and listening about them here on the podcast. But that's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in the middle of August for the early August edition of G News. And we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind the scenes content from your favorite TV shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, whether Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.